New welcome music? I didn't even notice. Thanks for, thanks for paying attention to that kind of stuff. Hey, uh, grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12. And while you're looking for that, I just want to uh, share a couple things with you. Uh, first of all, it's good to be back. Uh, Meg and I and uh, our kids and grandkids had a chance to travel to Ireland uh, it was phenomenal, uh, but we missed you, and I just want to say thank you. I know many of you were praying for uh, safety as we drove on the wrong side of the road, and w- yeah, it was crazy. We only I managed to hit one curb and smash a tire and had to buy a new tire, but other than that, we didn't run over any people, which is always good, uh, but it was a challenge. A beautiful place, beautiful trip, and I just want to thank you for uh, praying for us as we were gone. Uh, And the second thing I just want to do before I get into the passage today is just thank Pastor G and Bryce for really just doing a masterful job. We have uh, some brilliant teachers here, uh, and I just, uh, it was just a thrill for me uh, to listen in, to hear G and just the way they launched this series. So uh, thank you to both of those guys for uh, just doing a great job. So First Peter 2, verses 1 through 12. Peter writes these words. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stone are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable through God, to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scriptures, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not put to shame. Amen? Verse seven. So the honor is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone, and the stone a stumbling or a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse nine. He's talking to all of us who know Jesus. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Make sure you keep your Bibles open there. We're gonna unpack that, but uh, let me just pray for us. Lord, I, I just ask that as we move through this passage Uh, that you would bring forth whatever it is you want us to hear today, that you would speak uh, through your word, that the words that I say that are of you would land on fertile soil and bear fruit, and anything I say that's not of you would just fall away and be blown away uh, like chaff. Lord, I thank you for the worship team. I thank you for 
the way they led us to this place of asking a question, what is most important in our lives? May, may we just continue to sit with that question, not just today, but every day. May we hold you front and center. May we make Jesus the most important thing in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen? So we've titled this series on First Peter, Everyday Saints. And if you've been at Grace very long, one of the things you've heard me say consistently is context matters. If we don't understand why a letter was written or a book of the Bible was written, who it was written to, what was the, the circumstances around, what is the, the social setting in which that letter was written, why did the person take the time to write the letter? If we don't understand, here's the easiest way to say it, if you don't understand what the passage meant in the original context, then you will never know what it means in our context. So we have to do some good work of, of digging in and finding out what is the, the context of this letter, right? And so it's kind of like this. It's, it's sort of, whenever you're reading in a, a letter, especially the epistles, you're hearing only one side of the conversation, right? You don't get both sides of it. It's sort of like you were listening to somebody on the phone. If you've ever just listened on a phone conversation, you have to make assumptions about what they're talking about, who they're talking to, what are the circumstances on that conversation. And if your assumptions are right, then it's going to make sense. But if your assumptions are wrong, you can make some really bad determinations about what that conversation's about, right? So uh, case in point, you're listening to somebody on the phone and they say something like, hey, you're just going to have to jump in the deep end and learn to swim, now, most of us would know that's some kind of metaphor, right? And we would assume, though, well, they're probably talking about work or some kind of challenge in the person's life. And, and if they were actually talking about swimming, that's pretty stupid advice, right? If you don't know how to swim, you're just going to have to jump in the deep end and drown, right? It's, it's, but so, so context matters, and we know that, and we use it all the time. We make assumptions about context when we listen to a conversation. And we need to do the same thing when it comes to passage of scripture. So here in 1 Peter, we have a letter that's written to Gentiles, by that we just mean non-Jewish people, who are persecuted and scattered throughout modern-day Turkey, and, and they are in society, but they are not an accepted part of society. They are exiles in their own areas. They are kind of outcasts. They're, they're living in a hostile environment, right? They're outsiders, and this letter is written to them to help them to understand how it is they can navigate life in order to survive, but not just to survive, but to thrive, right? This letter is written to people who are, are not considered the, the core of society, how they can thrive in their lives. It's written to everyday, ordinary people, telling them how they can be everyday saints in a world that's hostile towards them. Let me say that again. This letter is written to show us how we can be everyday saints in a world that's hostile towards us. So this is a good place to stop for a minute and just ask a question. How many of you want to have more God impact, more kingdom impact in your community, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your country. How many of you want to have more impact? It's okay. You can, you don't have to raise your hand, but I would hope that most of us say, of course, I want to impact people around me more and more for the kingdom of God. I want them to see Jesus in me. And this letter is really the playbook for just that. It's the instruction manual. It's the how-to. That's the very reason it was written. And we got to face this. More and more, we are less accepted inside. If you decide to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, 
chances are that is going to be counterculture, that there is a, a, a push more and more for Christianity to be outside of the norm, right? We are becoming more and more treated with hostility by society. And so the question is, what do we do? How do we navigate that? How do we live in that kind of an environment and still have an impact on those around us? That's what this letter is all about. So Pastor G started and he talked about three common responses. You remember this? And he said that, that we have to be careful when, whenever we, we, we have this situation of, of not becoming uh, assimilated, right? Not just becoming whatever society is. We can assimilate and then we lose our witness because we just don't stand out. We're just the same thing as everybody else. And I think if you step back, you can see that happening in a lot of different ways. And then the other thing he said is we have to avoid becoming hopeless, Right? We could just get so fed up and say, well, what difference can I make? Society doesn't care about Jesus. Society doesn't care about Christianity. As a matter of fact, they're pushing him away. I can't affect them, so you become hopeless, and he used the word despair. But then he challenged us that, that what this letter is doing is it's causing us to re-engage our imagination, to imagine all that God could do and to, to sink into and to allow God to use us in a powerful way. And then last week, Bryce talked about what it means to live holy. He talked about having right thinking and right living and right living. We are called to be holy amidst this society because God is holy. And if you don't, that doesn't make sense to you, I just encourage you to get Bryce's, uh, the, the message from last week. It, it, he did a phenomenal job of just breaking down what that means. So with all of that context, remember context matters. With all of that context, we come to chapter two. Right, and, and so Peter starts with these words. Look at verse one. He says, so put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. And if you jump down to verse 11 in the beginning at 12, he says, I urge you, abstain from passions of the flesh. And then verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Basically, what we have here is, is Peter giving us these, these ethical exhortations, right? It starts and it ends with this, here's how you are to live your life. Here's the ethics that you need to live by if you want to have impact in your society, in the people around you, in your family structure. These are important things that you need to do in order for that to happen. If you want to have impact, he starts with this. He says you have to put away malice. That means not having any ill will towards anyone, right? It could be ill will towards a person or it could be ill will towards a group of people, but it's no vengeful thoughts. Uh, if you go back to something we talked about a few weeks ago before I left, I, I showed you that book, Unoffendable. It keeps coming up even as I think about this. Like we need to live our lives unoffendable where we're not offended by people and where we don't, don't subject people to, to judgment and, and harsh criticism. It's that ill will. But here's what I want to do uh, today as I, as I move through this passage. Is I want to encourage you uh, not to move too fast and not to let yourself off the hook too easy. Uh, as you sit with this, uh, you're probably, if you, if, you, if you have the experience I had this week and you sit with these words, you begin to realize uh, maybe there's more of this in me than I thought there was. And I think one of the problems or, or reasons for this to happen is when you read this list, uh, Peter uses such strong language, right? It's, it's colorful, pejorative words that, that I think can just fool us and say, well, I'm not that. I don't, I don't have malice, right? That's a, that's a hard word. Or I don't have deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander, right? Those are strong words. And so in the strength of the words, it's easier to say, well, at least I'm not doing that, right? And, and I just want to encourage you to stay with the word 
each of these words just a little bit more as I walk through them and just ask the Lord, is, it, is this part, is this something I need to pay attention to? So malice, at first glance you might say, well, I don't have malice, but let me ask you this. Is there a person in your life, maybe in your, some, something from your past, maybe even in your present, that when you think of that person, you just immediately get that knot in your stomach? Like there's a, there's a kind of a cringe inside of you. And, and the thought of praying that God would just pour out his blessing on that person, that they would just have all kinds of God's blessing and favor, that God would be, like that would be very difficult for you when you think of that particular person. Well, that's malice, that's ill will. That's why Jesus said, hey, when you have these people in your life, pray for them, pray for the blessing because it'll soften your heart to them, it'll change your heart. But if, but if those people are there, then you have malice. And this passage is saying, you, if you wanna have impact, if you wanna change things around you, if you want God to use you to have kingdom impact, then you need to live with no malice, no offense towards anyone, no harboring of any ill will towards anyone, even the people who have hurt you the most or betrayed you the most. Now, for some of you, this could be an entire group of people. It could be a group of people who have chosen a different lifestyle that you think is wrong or sinful, and you've lumped them into a group, and you have ill will towards that group. You have a judgmental spirit towards that group. You speak poorly of that group of people. It could be an ethnic group. Right? You, could, you could get pulled into the media frenzy and all of a sudden everyone who's Muslim is, and, and you have this ill will towards them. So it, it could be a people group, it could be a person, but we are to live our lives if we want to have impact, if we want to change things, if we want to bring the kingdom, live our lives without malice. Make sense? We're supposed to put away malice. The second thing it says is, is to put away deceit and hypocrisy. So let's unpack deceit for a minute. One of the things I found fascinating as I studied this passage and really began to just break down each of the words in the Greek is the word deceit is actually the same word that's used for a decoy. And think about this for a minute. What is a decoy? A decoy is something that's uh, created in order to fool either a person or sometimes it's used in hunting to fool an animal or whatever, but it's, it's not the real thing. It's a decoy. You know, you put out duck decoys. Why? So that you can fool the ducks to thinking there's... Happy ducks down there, but boy, things go bad pretty quick once they land, right? That's, that's what a decoy is. We, uh, uh, almost every year, I didn't get there this year, but almost every year we go to Florida and fish in the Keys. And if you drive through the Keys, there's really only one road to get you from island to island. Uh, there are police cars parked on the side of the road. Uh, I don't know if they're retired police cars or that's just where they park, but there's nobody in the car. Those are decoys. So what do you do when you see the police car? You slow down. It's only after you go by you realize that car was empty, but sometimes they're not empty, right? So those cars are decoys, and it works brilliantly, unless you're a local probably, and you know where all the decoys are. But for us people coming from out of town, you're just going to drive slower because there's these decoys, these empty. Now, that car's never going to pull you over because there's nobody in it, but you don't know that. So it's a decoy, right? It's there to slow you down. So why do I tell you all that? Because you could hear the word deceit and think, well, that, I don't tell lies, I don't spin the truth, I'm not out there. Well, anytime you put on a false front, anytime you try to project something to people that's not necessarily completely true or, or you know it's not true, anytime you're, you're, you're putting on some kind of false front in order to impress somebody or to make them think something about you, then you are practicing deceit. It's just as dishonest as telling an out-and-out -out lie, right? Projecting a false front is just a form of deceit. Let's talk about hypocrisy for a minute. Probably needs uh, the least amount of explanation. 
but I would say this is one of the legitimate reasons why we have such a terrible uh, amount of impact in the community. Because people look at us and they say, because what they see is a group of people who are obsessed with other people's sin and neglecting their own. Right? They look and they see all of this and they're, and they're gonna make a stink about how other people are living their lives, but anyone who watches closely knows that they have just as much junk in their own lives and that's really hypocrisy at its core, right? Being fully focused on what somebody else should do and ignoring what God is saying that you should do. That's hypocrisy. Let's keep going. Peter writes in just verse one, we're still in verse one. It's gonna be a long morning. Just kidding. Uh, Peter writes in verse one uh, that we have to put away envy, and slander, and envy is this miserable trait of being glad when someone else experiences a little bit of misfortune so that their misfortune allows you to have more fortune, right? It's, it's being jealous of someone or hoping that a person trips up a little bit so that you can get an advantage. Now, I'm about to tell you something. It's really risky. I talked to Meg about whether or not I should even share this. I don't wanna scare you. Um, but just stay with me for a minute. So when we were in Ireland, one of the things I did was listen in on the services, right? And I found myself uh, initially praying that G and Bryce would be really good, but not too good. <laughs> right? And we could laugh about it, but that's really sick. <laughs> right? I, I, di I didn't want them to outshine me. Right, it's totally selfish, totally worried about my own. It's just, it's really sad, right? And I had to like own that. I, had to, I went and talked to Meg about it and I had to take it to God and just say, God, I, I don't want that feeling. I don't want a feeling, that's, that's envy. Like I want G to be good, but I don't want him to be better. <laughs> right? That's sad. So, so my point is, I think this is more insidious than we might Realize when there's somebody at work and you're hoping that they, yeah, I hope they do a good job, but I don't want them to outsell me or out, like that's envy, right? That's all self-protection. That's all messed up kind of ways of thinking. And I can tell you when that gets into a, a, an organization, a family unit, a, a business, a church, it becomes a cancer, right? So I have to give that back to God and I have to reach out to G and to Bright and say, look, I hope God uses you in ways that God has never used a speaker at Grace before. I want the spirit to move in a powerful way. And I just have to pray that out and pray something else in. So you get that? So envy is, envy is a, just, it's very insidious, right? So we do away with envy. The other word here that we need to just spend a little bit of time with is slander, uh, slander is uh, anytime you use language to tear somebody down or when you assign motive to someone that you don't really know, but you say, well, that person did this because of this. And, and suddenly you're using words for the sheer purpose of making that person's reputation damaged. Any words that tear somebody down or weakens a person's reputation is slander. The scripture actually says clearly, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And people use that passage as a don't swear. That's not what he's talking about. Remember, context matters. Swearing's not good, okay? Pastor Doug didn't say swearing's okay. But that passage is saying don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Only that which is good for building up the body. Because we have such a propensity to talk about people and to tear people down. And we do that, again, out of self-protection. And, and if we can bring people down, then we think we're bringing ourselves up, okay? Question I would ask you, are there words that you're using, uh, are the words you're using building people up or are they tearing people down? And I just wanna challenge you, this includes social media. And you don't have to spend much time on Facebook to see that I think we may violate this very command often 
and I know this could create problems, but it includes political figures. So if your words are constantly to tear down a past president or a current president, then we're violating this command. And I'm not saying you have to love everything that's going on, but be careful as Christians how we use our words. Because if we want to have an impact, we need to make sure that slander doesn't come out of our mouths. All right. If you want to thrive, you want to have impact in your family, in your communities, you have to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, just a little bit more. Jump down to verse 11, Peter continues, and he says, you have to abstain from passions of the flesh. Simply put, you need to avoid engaging in whatever sinful desire that comes to mind. Meg and I were actually sitting Friday talking about the sermon, and uh, she said when she got to this, this section of the scripture that her immediate thoughts were of the big sins, like you know having a, a, an affair or pornography or something like that. And, and the Lord sort of showed her that really this abstaining from passion of the flesh is any time you know you're supposed to do something, but you choose to do something else that's more selfish or self-gratifying. So it could be as simple as turning on the TV when you know you're supposed to have a hard conversation with someone or, or any of those. So anytime you, abst- you, you move towards what you want as opposed to what you know God wants for you. So look at verse two in this passage, chapter two, verse two, because Peter's kind of making this, kind of turning the tables here, and he says, instead of these things like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that you may grow in your salvation. Pursue the right things. Pursue spiritual nourishment. This is the challenge of the spiritual life. What you long for, what you pursue makes a difference. That's why it's so phenomenal that John and the worship team led us. I didn't even get to talk to John before the weekend because I was gone and then he was gone. So it's just amazing to me how God pulled this service together. But all of those songs about making Jesus preeminent in our lives, that's about pursuing what God wants. And then if you jump down to 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Verse 12 in the NIV translation says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they still see your good deeds and what? Glorify God. They see God in the way you behave. Live such good lives, live such honorable lives that people take note that something is up. If you wanna have impact, the way you live your lives makes a difference. Peter actually quotes the words of Jesus when he says that they will see your good deeds. Remember Jesus said, do these things, that they will see your good deeds and honor your father in heaven. But there's a catch to everything that I've just said. There's definitely some small print. And it's this, on your own, you are absolutely incapable of doing any of this. This is not self-help. This is not pull yourself up by your theological bootstraps. Uh, I'm not encouraging you to dig down and just try harder. As a matter of fact, if you leave here and just think, I just gotta do a better job, I just gotta try harder, I just gotta, you're just gonna fail. Because this is not something you can do without the infusion and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So the question is, what do we do? 
How is it that we live out these, this, this amazing uh, call that Peter gives us? How do we live it into it? And so I wanted to give you two keys to living this out. And I, and I just, I want you to hold on to it. I want you to, this is what I want you to take away from today. And the first key is priority. You have to decide what your priority is. What is the most important thing in your life? If you want all God has for you, Right, if you want to have an impact, then everything you do can flow out of making Jesus the preeminent place in your life. Everything flows out of that. Being a great father, being a great wife, being a great mother, being a great friend, being a great community activist. If all of that flows out of Jesus being preeminent in your life, then things are gonna work. But the minute you get that priority wrong, things are going to go astray. There's an author, he's out of, down south, and he wrote a book and, and preached a powerful message that became pretty famous, but his words are this. He says, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Right, and that's powerful when you say that Jesus plus nothing else equals every, everything else good that comes out of your life can come out of that one choice to prioritize Jesus front and center. And you can see the need to prioritize in this text where in, chapter, in verse two where he says, long for pure spiritual milk. You know, spiritual milk is just those things in your life that, that, that help you to connect with God. Spiritual milk can be as simple as just taking time every day to sit with Jesus and soak it in. Spiritual milk can be your time in the word. Spiritual milk can be a long walk on the beach because that's where Jesus meets you. Whatever that is that allows you to have that connection with God and can to, to know God more is, is part of it. And then even verse 11 where he says, abstain from passions of the flesh. That's about priority. You gotta choose. Am I chasing after this or am I chasing after that. Do I want what God wants or do I just want what I want? Both of these emphatically lay the burden on us to show up and to participate with God, to avoid short, excuse me, short-circuiting what God is doing in us and through us. And when we prioritize, God shows up. And he begins to reveal himself to us. And he begins to show us who we are in Christ. And that's the second key that's so important and it's identity, priority and identity. And I cannot overemphasize this one enough. Listen, everything you do, all of your responses, all of your conduct, the way you react to circumstances and the way you react to people is all rooted in your identity. Everything you do is rooted in your identity. The more your identity is firmly rooted in who you are in Christ, the more you are able to navigate and to live without malice or slander or ill will and avoid sinful desires. Proper identity is critical. So I have some good friends in my life. Um, one of them is Meg, who have permission to say hard things to me, and, and sometimes they do. And uh, when I am in a good place, when I know who I am in Christ, when I am secure in my identity in Jesus, those hard truths sometimes are just an incredible blessing that I can receive them and, and, and know that this is from God and that this is about God shaping me and making me a better man. And I, I you know, it's never fun. Nobody likes to hear hard things, right? But, but something about it is almost like medicine, a balm, right? To help me to be a better person. It's, it's great. I receive those words with grace and with gentleness. But boy, if I'm even the least bit insecure, watch out, right? I become defensive. 
I become easily hurt, which means I then try to hurt the people around me. I begin to harbor ill will. I might even sometimes put on a false front to prove that they're wrong. I begin to, I'll show you, right? And that's not the way it is. And so I project, what is that? That's deceit, right? What you believe about yourself is critical. And Peter knows it. And so right in the middle of this text, he writes these incredible words of identity, starting in verse nine. He says, you are chosen. Meg and I went to... uh, Lunch this week, early, right after we got back from Ireland, we went out to lunch because we didn't have any food in the refrigerator, and that's a good excuse to go out to eat, right? We couldn't go to the grocery store, we had to go out to eat. But anyway, uh, we went to this restaurant that uh, some friends of ours own, and uh, the waitress came out and said, the chef wants to make you something special that's not on the menu, is that okay? And uh, it was cool. Why was it cool? Because they noticed us. They saw us. We were chosen by the chef to prepare food that wasn't even on the menu. It made you feel really important, made you feel special, right? It makes sense. We, there's something about being chosen that gives you a, a sense of, of belonging. Think about this. Who's a, a person, a celebrity or political figure that you really admire and you'd love to meet? Now you're all going to say Jesus because you're at church. So <laughs> apart from Jesus... Maybe somebody, you know, modern day, whatever, that you'd love to meet. So Meg loves Bono. Uh, This is funny. Somebody last night thought that I said this is something that happened. This is a hypothetical story that I'm about to tell. Meg loves Bono, and and Bono is from Ireland. And so when we were hanging out in Ireland, what if Bono found out that the Kemptons were in town? And he had called us and said, hey, I heard that that you're in town. I'd love to show you my city. You know, we're going to come by and pick you up and drive you around in my limo and show you the city. Now, that would be pretty cool, right? For some of you, like, I wouldn't care. But for us, that would be amazing. For Meg especially, like, Bono chose me to show me around the city. Why do I say that? Because that pales in comparison to this word chosen. You are chosen by God. The God of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence, chose you. Now, here's the deal. There's more, but I actually think this one truth could transform your life. When you are insecure, when you are struggling, when you feel like I can't or, or whenever that, that insecurity was, maybe all you need to say to yourself is, wait a minute, I am chosen by God. God chose me. Peter says you're chosen, then he says you are a royal priesthood. He's using Old Testament language to describe the people, but I want you to think of it both corporately, but also individually. What does it mean? It means you are royalty. If you said yes to Jesus, you are an adopted son and daughter of the Most High God. That is worth remembering. That's your identity. You are a holy nation. He continues in verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You receive mercy. The beautiful picture. You are God's possession is what the passage says. And, and God has poured out his mercy. Once you were unforgiven, but now you're forgiven. Unmerited favor. You are loved beyond your ability to even comprehend. This is the identity that should fuel everything you do. This is the identity that actually has to fuel you if you are going to live your life without malice and slander and ill will. All of those words flow out of a security in Christ. And when you are insecure, you cannot do this. 
I wanna read verse nine for you in its entirety one more time, and I just want you to let it sink in and, and realize what Peter is saying. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Your identity is in place so that you can have impact. Do you see it in the passage there? You are all of these things so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. The fact of the matter is we are without an excuse. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've said yes to Jesus and you are called, you are equipped, you are empowered to have impact in your community and the question I would just leave you with this morning is are you? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for First Peter. I thank you for the challenge of the week, even as I've dug into this passage. I thank you for showing me uh, the blemishes and the darkness in my own spirit that I can give those things back to you. But I also thank you for my identity. I thank you for our identity, that we are chosen, that we are holy because of the work of Jesus, not because we... Uh, worked harder, not because we read more scripture this week, not because we prayed more, not because we did our 15 minutes with God. Those are all good things, but our identity is solely wrapped in the fact that we are in Christ. Help us to know that deep down. Help us to live that out. And Lord, help us as individuals and as a church to continue to have impact far beyond our own imaginations. In his name, amen. Hey, I think you know this, but uh, there's a group of people that gather before the service, uh, and they pray for you, and they pray for the service, and they ask the Lord, uh, what do people need to hear today? And one of the things that they heard clearly was that um, there's somebody in the room that just needs to be delivered from feeling like they're a victim, and that you are more than a conqueror, and if you've had a, just a sense of, of life piling on you and you're a victim, I would love for you to be one of those people that come down and let the uh, prayer team pray for you. And the other thing that came up is that there's someone who's just been suffering from pain in their right shin, uh, and we would just love to pray for you and ask the Lord to show up and bring healing. So if that's you and you know it's you, boy, that, I, that you know, then come on down. If you have something else that you want prayer for, uh, we have a gifted team that would love to pray for you. God bless you. Have a cool Sunday afternoon. Perfectly